Amen. Thank you, William. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. If you do not have a copy, there's a, a Bible there in the pew rack in front of you. If you find page 1060, you'll find Revelation chapter 8. If you're a guest of ours, we've been studying through the book of Revelation together on uh, Sunday morning, and we've found our way here to chapter 8, uh, where we see the first four trumpet uh, judgments. Now, let me just give you briefly kind of how we got here. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the first six seal judgments, uh, the first being false peace. We, we alluded to, and we'll get into more detail of this as we get down the road in our study of Revelation, but we alluded to Antichrist who comes onto the scene during the Great Tribulation, and in some phenomenal way that it's hard for you and I to understand in our current cultural context, the Antichrist has, is able to unite uh, the entire world around one global identity. All of the different religions, all of the different political ideologies and so forth, he's, he's able to unite everybody under one global identity, and he promises us peace. But as we saw, that is a false peace that will not last very long. And then we looked at the wars of the, the second seal, then famine, and then death, and then the martyrdom of untold numbers of Christians, and then the divine judgment of God through several uh, natural catastrophes and so forth. And then last week, uh, chapter 7, I, I told you was an interlude between the 6th and the 7th seal, kind of a pause, where we saw this mighty work of salvation. We saw where God redeems 144,000 Jews who will become the greatest missionary uh, force that the church has ever seen. And then in that, he redeems an untold innumerable number of Gentiles from every nation, tribe, language, and people group. And now we come to chapter 8, and we see the seventh seal opened. And the seventh seal is not necessarily a seal by itself, but it contains the seven trumpet judgments. Like the seventh trumpet judgment is not a trumpet judgment of its own, but it contains the seven bowl judgments. And so we're going to get into that as we keep going, but it's like an onion. You just keep peeling layers and one reveals another. And so we're going to read through this together in bits and pieces as we come uh, to the various, the, the, the various points that I want us to see here. Uh, if you are a guest on the back of the bulletin, there is an opportunity where you can take notes and kind of follow along there on the teaching outline. And so look with me beginning in verse 1 through 6. I want us to see uh, what I've labeled here the preparation of the seven trumpets, the preparation of the seven trumpets. Let's read that together. When he, he is Christ, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar he was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The, uh, the angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. 
The first thing we see in verse 1 is this, if you're following along here, the silence in heaven. When Christ opened the seventh seal and the judgment of God becomes visible, the entire populace of heaven is reduced to silence. Think about that for just a moment. When was the last time that you sat in silence? No conversation, no television, no radio, no cell phone, no nothing, just silence. And for 30 minutes, the entire populace of heaven was silent at the revelation of God's judgment. Now, contrast that with, with what we've previously studied related to the tremendous volume of praise and adoration that we see in Scripture. Let, let, let me just remind you of some of that. I want to share with you a few verses here. Just listen as we read these. First, in, in chapter 4, verse 5, here's what we read. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Anything but silence. And then in verse 8 of chapter 4, each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And then in verse 11 of chapter 4, they cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And then in chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, we see in verse 9, it says that, they, they, that, that the four living creatures and the 24 elders sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. We, we just got done singing this truth just, just a moment ago. And then you come and you look at verse 12. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then we come to chapter 7, and here's what we read, that this, this vast, innumerable number of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the angels and the elders of heaven join with him and they begin to sing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so the, the volume of praise and adoration that we've come, grown accustomed to here in, in, in heaven has gone eerily quiet and still. A reminder that what's fixing to happen is something tremendous. It is the silence. It is the calm before the storm. And then look with me beginning in verse 2 through verse 5. We see the prayers in heaven. John says, I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God and seven trumpets were given to them. 
Now, the use of the definite article the in verse 2 tells us that this is a privileged group of angels, and their participation in the trumpet judgment only reinforces that idea. These seven angels, whoever they are, they're unnamed, but whoever they are, are given seven trumpets. Now, now why a trumpet? Why, why not a drum? Why not a flute? Why not a harp or a lyre or a cymbal? Why a trumpet? Well, because a trumpet has played a very important role in, in, in Israel, the nation of Israel's history uh, since it became a nation, since God um, chose this people group from all the peoples of the world to be his people. Numbers chapter 10 teaches us that the trumpet would be used specifically in, in, three, in three ways. Number one, to call the people together in a public assembly. When, when it rang a certain sound, the people knew to gather. It would be used when a new king was anointed and enthroned. And then finally, we saw where the trumpets were, were used at the conquest of Jericho to, to celebrate special occasions. And so the use of a trumpet here is not something that would have been unfamiliar for the Apostle John or his readers in that first century. It emphasizes the importance and significance of what is getting ready to happen. And then in verse 3, we read that there's an eighth angel, another angel that's given a golden incense burner, and he comes and he stands before the golden altar. Now, let me just give you a little bit of historical context, just kind of take you back a little bit. If you'll remember in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, and then later in the temple, when, when the... When, they, when, when God gave the Hebrew people instructions on both the tabernacle and the temple, he told them that there is a holy of holies place that would be separated by a veil, by a large curtain, if you will. It was about 18 inches wide. It was about 30 feet tall. On the outside of that veil was the golden altar. On the inside was the mercy seat. In one day of a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go into the Holy of Holies where he would take the blood of the sacrificial lamb and he would cover the mercy seat with it. Well, outside of the Holy of Holies, on a regular basis, the priest would go there to before the golden altar and burn incense. Those incense were, were, were likened under the prayers of God's people. The psalmist said this in chapter 141, uh, chapter one, uh, Psalm 141 and verse 2. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. There's an illustration we see in Scripture where this very thing is happening, and it was in the life of Zechariah. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, who's serving as a priest, is in this holy place at the, at the golden altar burning incense. And it was there while he was performing his priestly duties that the angel Gabriel came to him and said, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. You and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a child, a son, and you're going to name him John. Now, they'd been unable to have children. They had been unable to conceive for many years. And so this was a miraculous birth. And John the Baptist would come from Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so that was what he was doing in that moment. So as you read Luke chapter 1, it kind of parallels what we see here in Revelation 8 as to the function of this incense before the golden altar. Verse 4 tells us that uh, the, the, the prayers of God's people are ascending before his throne. Look what we read there. 
The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up into the presence of God from the angel's hand. Now, we don't know the, the, the extent of the prayers of God's people. We do get an idea in chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11 when we looked at the fifth seal of God's judgment when, when the martyrs were pleading with God. We see a prayer. They were praying, number one, that Satan uh, would, would be destroyed, that Satan would be eliminated, that, that sin would be defeated, that the blood of the martyrs would be avenged, and most importantly, they prayed that Christ would return. I want you to just think about this for a moment. For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has been praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, that's getting ready to happen. We see that prayer being answered here beginning in chapter 8. The incense burner, which is often associated with the prayers of God's people, in verse 5 is now filled with fire from the altar of God. This incense burner now becomes a symbol of divine wrath. And look at the immediate, the immediate consequences. What do we read here? It was hurled to the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, those things are typically associated with the awesome majesty of God's throne and of God's presence. We saw that in chapter 4 and verse 5. It's just a minute ago when we read it. We see it in chapter 11 and verse 19. Let me, let me just read that to you. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and severe hail. Chapter 16 and verse 18, we see that same language. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake. But, this, but Revelation isn't the first place where we see this phenomenon happening. We see it in, in, in Exodus chapter 19 when God's people are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Listen to this language. Beginning in verse 16, it says, On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord God came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And so here in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 5, we see just the, the glory and the majesty and the power of God's throne and of God's presence, and it's hurled to the earth in a moment of wrath. The storm of God's judgment is about to begin. And then that takes us to the first trumpet, okay? Look with me at verse 7. Let's read that together. The first trumpet is what you and I can refer to as the desolation of the land. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, I can't answer for you this morning how hail and fire 
mixed with blood were because by nature, fire is going to melt hail, which is ice, right? I don't know how they work together. I, it's a supernatural phenomenon and, 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 a, and a question that I can't answer. I believe it's going to happen because God's Word says it's going to happen, but I can't offer you an explanation. And God's judgment comes to the earth so much so that a third of the trees and a third of all vegetation and all the green grass is burned up. It's destroyed. Now, now let's try to just imagine what this is like. Just think about it this way. One-third of all fruits and vegetables destroyed. One-third of all trees destroyed. All of the green grass, every pasture that every grazing animal relies on for food is burned up. Now, I didn't do enough research to try to understand the consequences of this, but, but just think about this for a moment. One-third of the oxygen-producing capacity of the earth is destroyed. You see, trees, by a process called photosynthesis, produces oxygen. Well, a third of the trees around the world are gone. So that means there's a third less oxygen. I avoided the science area of college. I didn't go near that part of campus. But I don't think it's a good thing when there's one-third less oxygen. Okay, I don't think there's anything good can come of that, right? Look with me at verses 8 and 9. We see the second trumpet, what you and I will refer to as the desolation of the seas. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled in the sea. So a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, let, let, let's try to get a picture of this. A great object that John likens to a mountain on fire was hurled into the sea, causing a third of the sea and a third of the marine life and a third of the ships to be destroyed. Now, the specific, the specific identity of this object is not known to us. Theologians have, have contemplated maybe it's a giant meteorite, maybe it's a giant asteroid, maybe an entire mountain range is blown up from its foundation and thrown in the ocean. We don't know the exact identity of this object, but that's not what's important here. What's important here is the consequence of what happens. A third of all saltwater life is destroyed. A third of all seafood is destroyed. I, I, I love seafood. Now, in our cultural context, you and I are not dependent on the ocean for life and sustenance, but in many cultures of the world, they need the oceans. They need the seas. They, they need to fish and, other, uh, and do other things to survive. A third of all saltwater life is destroyed. A third of all ships are destroyed. Now, just try to think of that in context. A third of every naval vessel in the world is destroyed. A third of the U.S. naval vessels, a third of the Russian and the Chinese and the Korean and the Japanese and, and all the other nations of the world, a third of all naval vessels, a third of all cargo ships, a third of all oil containers, a third of all fishing ships, a third of all cruise ships destroyed. And think about the consequence, the magnitude of that. If right now, today, if a third of all oil tankers were destroyed, the price of gas would skyrocket to levels you and I have never seen. 
If a third of all cargo ships right now traveling the oceans were destroyed, the cost of our everyday goods and and supplies would skyrocket. The economic chaos that would ensue is something that man's never seen. Tragic, not to mention the loss of life. Look with me, beginning in verse 10, we see the third trumpet, what you and I will refer to as the desolation of the freshwater sources. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. Wormwood is mentioned eight times in the Old Testament, and it always refers and is associated with bitterness, poison, and death. In this trumpet judgment, a third of all fresh water is poisoned and ruined. More fish are destroyed, and at this point in time, a third of all marine life is destroyed. Not, not only the, the saltwater marine life, but now the freshwater marine life is destroyed. A third of all freshwater is poisoned and, and, and not, uh, no longer consumable by humans or animals. Th- think about that. A third of the Mississippi River poisoned. A third of the Colorado River poisoned. A third of the Amazon. A third of the Nile. A third of the Great Lakes. A third of uh, the Everglades, a third of the Okefenokee, a third of uh, Lake Okeechobee, a third of Lake Victoria, and the list goes on and on and on. The, the number of gallons of drinking water that comes from these sources can't even be calculated, and it's no longer suitable for human consumption. Uh, the, the, the number of food sources that come either directly or, or indirectly from these bodies of water are dead and poisoned and no longer able to be consumed. The consequences of this judgment will be unimaginable. You and I can't even begin to think about all that's happening around the world. The entire ecosystem of planet Earth is turned upside down and altered forever. And then we come to the fourth judgment, verse 12. And we read, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. You and I can refer to this as uh, the desolation of the celestial bodies, the desolation of the celestial bodies. Bodies. Here's what we read, that, that, that a third of daylight is gone. Now, now, how this happens and what is the phenomenon, I don't have any idea. It's not explainable because it's something we've never experienced. But here's what we do know just from science. The loss of light and heat uh, will cause temperatures to dramatically fall all over the world. The weather patterns that we are accustomed to will be severely disrupted and altered and changed. Agricultural crops will no longer grow in the same manner they have for all of history. Human and animal life will suffer greatly from the loss of light and heat and food sources. The entire solar system, the entire galaxy, the entire universe 
is adversely affected with this fourth trumpet. The world won't even be recognizable like we've known it for so many thousands of years. The first four trumpets of God's judgment. But then we come to verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. John says, I looked and I heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blast that the three angels are about to sound. A great warning uh, 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 is issued to mankind, a warning that you and I can no longer ignore the fact that God is dealing with our sin and our rebellion and our unbelief. The word woe there is used throughout Scripture as an expression of judgment, of destruction, and of condemnation. And notice what we read there, something very particular. It says, woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth. That is a phrase that is used specifically to reference those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have chosen not to surrender in faith to God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We saw it in chapter 6 and verse 10, and we looked at it in detail then, but let me just remind you of a couple of key passages. In chapter 13 and verse 8, here's what we read. And this is in reference to those who are worshiping the beast, the false beast and antichrist. Here's what we read. All those who live on the earth, there's that same phrase, will worship it, worship the beast. Everyone whose name, watch this, was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. And then we also see it in chapter 17 and verse 8. Let me read that to you real quick. In chapter 17 and verse 8, we see this. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth, there's that same phrase, whose names have not been written in the book of, li book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. Now, just as a reminder, what is the Lamb's book of life? That, that is the heavenly ledger of all those who surrender in faith to Jesus Christ. And so all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are those who live on the earth at the time of the fourth trumpet. It's those who have said no to God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the first time. Verse 13 is not the first time in Scripture where God has warned us of his impending judgment. On several occasions over the course of human history, God has made clear to us in, in, in very, uh, very clear terms that he is coming to judge sin and unbelief and rebellion. Isaiah chapter 13, an entire chapter is devoted to God's prophetic announcement of his judgment of this world order. Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21 are all, we see, we see Christ's warnings and admonitions to us that he indeed is coming to judge sin and unbelief. No one, listen carefully, no one 
believer or unbeliever, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, no one should be surprised when these judgments begin to take place because God has told us in very clear language what he's going to do. But listen carefully. Running parallel to God's warning and admonition of judgment is also this. Listen carefully. It is God's invitation to all of humanity to be saved and redeemed from our sin and ultimately his wrath through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. See, God is not leaving us without hope. He's not leaving us without grace and mercy, even in his judgment of man's unbelief. Look with me here at Romans chapter 10. I just I want us to look for, for just a brief moment at a very familiar passage of Scripture that we find here. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in the city of Rome, all right, the capital of the empire. And here's what he writes. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote these words, and he wrote these words to a group of people living in the Roman Empire, and he was calling them to something that they was, was unfamiliar to most of them. Paul wasn't calling people to religion. He wasn't calling people to spirituality. He wasn't calling people to a church or to a denomination. He was calling people to die to themselves, to die to the ways of this world, and follow Christ as Lord and Savior, as master, as sovereign of their life. And so when he uses this language, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He's not calling us to recite a simple prayer. He's not calling us to join a church. He's not calling us to be religious or spiritual. He is calling us to die to the entirety of ourself and our selfish ways and follow Christ with all of our life. And here's the difference between then and now. For an individual 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire to forsake and renounce all that their cultural traditions and customs declared to be true and to surrender in faith to Christ would cost you most likely your family. It would cost you your job. It might cost you the forfeiture of your assets. And in many cases, it would cost you your life. Now, we live in a cultural context where those things aren't true yet. But it doesn't change the principle that the call here is to fully surrender to Christ, to abdicate the authority of our life to Him and follow Him regardless 
of the cost. That's what it means to confess with your mouth and to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Revelation chapter 8 wasn't written to those of us who have surrendered in faith to Christ. It was written to those who refused to follow him in faith. Maybe here today and you walk through these doors having never surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ. My humble prayer for you is simply this, that you would say yes to Jesus. That you would renounce all that has been driving your life to this point and surrender in faith to the God who created you, the God who died on the cross for you, the God who rose from the dead to give you life and life eternally. Would you please say yes to Jesus? Let's pray. Father God. Lord Jesus, in all honesty and transparency, it, it's hard. It's hard to say thank you for this text because this is a hard text. It is a, it is a difficult text. It, it is a heartbreaking text that there is coming a day that we are not far from when you are going to begin to pour out your wrath and fury upon this unbelieving world that we call home. And all of nature is going to be affected. All of humanity is going to be affected. Nothing that we are, everything we're familiar with is going to be turned upside down. And yet, Father God, this is truth. Your word is truth. And so, Lord Jesus, I humbly ask and pray if there is any individual in this room or any individual who is listening on on the internet or will listen later. I humbly ask and pray, Lord God, that, that if they do not know Christ as their personal Savior, that today, that right now in this moment, they would say yes to Jesus. They would surrender in faith to Him. They would cry out to Him for salvation. Thank you, Father God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for goodness, uh, mercy. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your care and your compassion toward us. Father God, would you move and work and move and work in a way in this place that only you can for your glory and for your honor. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen and amen.